This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, making the world healthier and greener one day at a time. Good morning. I'm Dr. Claudia. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Thank you all for tuning in. We're going to dive right into today's guest today because I'm thrilled to welcome two amazing women. Today on The Wellness Prescription, I am joined by Dr. Natasha Colia. She is a sick kids ER, pediatric ER actually, um, and she goes by Dr. Tash just to make life a lot easier for all the kitties who go in. And of course, we're joined by Stella Aquisto, our favorite host at City TV and mom to Layla and Gigi. So thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Really excited. Oh, I'm so excited to have you both. And you know what? By now, all of the listeners know what we'll be discussing today. And of course, it's children's health. And really, it's such an important topic, especially now, because we're all worried about taking our kids to the ER. So I thought it was really pertinent. And, um, you know, one of the things that I always worried about as a mother when my kids were a lot younger were fevers. So, Dr. Tash, I thought we could start with fevers. So when my kids were little, I panicked. It didn't matter what the temperature was. If it was registered a fever, I was in panic mode. So when do we have to be concerned about fevers? This is an absolutely great question, Claudia. And I think the reason why I think this is a great question is because this is a common conversation that I have with parents, either within the ER or outside of the ER. And I think, and I know all three of us may be able to agree on this, but I like to just kind of pull a little bit here and say, you know, growing up when you had a fever, I think our parents were very, were always afraid of, of it. And it was because of, you know, what, what they were told about fevers and, you know, how, you know, scary high number fevers are. And, you know, I don't know, maybe Claudia, you and, and Stella can pipe in. Italian background, my, my family always freaked out about fevers. They used to dunk me in ice. They used to give me all sorts of weird concoctions, the brandy. Um, <laughs> you know, it, and it was a very interesting concept that there was so much fear around fevers. So it's obviously very natural that now we go into our generation to have kids and to fear fevers. And so I guess the big question uh, that brings me back to it is maybe, you know, what causes that anxiety and what causes that fear? Is it the misconception of what a a fever really is? Like, what is a fever? Um, The number of the fever? Or is it the unknown of what the fever is telling us? Um, And so I'd like to ask, like, for both you and Stella, I know Stella's experienced uh, fevers in her kids. What's the biggest fear for both of you? And maybe I can address that as well. Go ahead, Stella. I would say the unknown for sure. The unknown, okay. like not knowing what, usually a, it, like a fever is an indication that your body is fighting something, right? Mm-hmm. And so for, so for me, it feels like it's the fear of the unknown, like what are what is my kids fighting? And then when the fever is prolonged, it scares you even more because you feel like, oh, okay, maybe it is something really serious. So I think for me, that's where the fear comes. And also, I think a bit of the unknown, like, like what, how many days do I wait to to go to the hospital, to the ER after um, my kid gets a fever? Um, like, there's a bunch of different questions, and that's, like, I always think, like, the struggle with fevers when it comes down to it, and I think that's where I start to panic. And I agree with yeah. that. So when my kids were younger, I think I panicked more about a high fever. I feel like a lower grade fever didn't worry me as much because I felt like it was my child's natural immune response. Uh, but when the fever got higher and it was persistent and nothing helped it, that's when I panicked. But that leads me to my next question. Um, so 
what are fevers otherwise a normal reaction? And the other big question that everybody asks me is, what is a normal temperature and what is a fever? I love that you asked this question, and Stella knows very well because her and I have had this discussion as well. But so I think your question, Claudia, is great because it also leads to us kind of closing the loop on, you know, when do fevers become concerning. So there's a few factors. One is what you said. What is a true fever? So we used to get into terms of low-grade fever, really, really high fever, and now eventually across the board, just to make it very simple, we just say, is it a fever or not? And so for us, a fever is 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 Fahrenheit. So for those of you that may use Fahrenheit versus those of you that look at Celsius. So that's first thing. So question is, what is a fever? It's 38 degrees Celsius or above, 100.4 Fahrenheit or above. However, there's certain immunocompromised groups that we look at those fevers that are like 37.8, 9. That means if your child is immunocompromised in whichever way, shape, or form, either undergoing chemotherapy or a known disease process that makes them immunocompromised, Something as low, something as 37.8, is a concern. So general population, if you're well, your child has a fever that's 38 degrees Celsius and above. So that's step number one. Step number two is how do you gauge that temperature? And this one always makes me laugh because it's true. There's such thing as what is more accurate and what do we go by? Because in the reality is, is if you have a child who you're telling us has a fever, but the temperatures are not being taken correctly, there are certain parts of the body that actually give you a higher temperature than what it should be. And you, that may be the difference between us doing a very big workup or doing nothing. And again, our, our oath is to do no harm. And I think sometimes people forget and parents forget because this is your child and you're worried is that sometimes doing nothing is okay because like anything, there are medical processes that take time to come through. And sometimes doing testing too early can lead to false like reassurance, mm-hmm. like the body hasn't amounted enough time to amount a response that will give us information that will say, this is what's going on. And so what I tell families is there's a general rule of thumb. It's at sick kids under a year, we do everything rectal, rectal temp. Now for parents that are listening right now, please don't be afraid. <laughs> please don't be afraid. Rectal temperatures are not harmful. Now, if you start doing a rectal temperature on your child at a certain age and above where they understand what you're doing, that could be detrimental because it, it, it's scary. You, you don't want them at age four, five, six getting rectal temperatures. So rule of thumb under year one, rectal temperature. That's how we do it when you come to the ER. That's how we take it. And most pediatricians will do it that way. The reason being is after the age of one, you can use areas like under the armpit. Before that, it's really hard to get a kid to kind of stay, a baby to stay really still, and also because there's a lot of body fat in certain areas. And so certain temperatures that are taken can be affected by the surrounding environment. So typically we say after year one, even sometimes up to year two, rectal temp. Then you start doing underarm. That's the next most sensitive and most accurate. After that, we talk about under the mouth or in the tongue, uh, under the tongue, sorry. And that's when children can actually hold the thermometer under the tongue. So everyone goes, well, what about the ear? What about the forehead? Hmm. So the ear you can do because it's a little quicker and easier, but know that the temperature could be off because even if the outside of your ear is warm, that can affect the temperature. The least accurate above all, and I'm sorry for any companies who sell this, is the forehead. Hmm. Okay, the forehead trigger thermometer, yes, we see it across the, the country and even across the you know, province for quick temperature checks, sure, that's great. But if you want an accurate temperature, 
the strips on the forehead and the th- and the gun are are not you know that little thermometer gun that everyone mm-hmm. uses. Those are not accurate at all. They are very affected by the environment. So those are two of the big factors, Claudia. One is what is a real temperature. Two is how do I take the accurate temperature. Now three becomes when do I get worried? And here's my general rule of thumb, and it's based on age. As we know, on average, children, infants, babies still are developing their immune system up at the age of six months. So my general rule of thumb is if your baby has even one temperature three months of age or younger, you need to see a physician physically. So that means during the day if you can see in your general pediatrician or family doctor or the ER if you can't do that. And the reason being is we don't know what that fever can cause. And in that age, they're very highly susceptible because they're only building their immune system Mm -hmm. during this time. So they could be anything from a virus to a bacterial infection. And you don't know that just by looking. After that, three months to six months, it's kind of a watch and wait. We say, you know, a day or two of fevers, you know, keep watching and see how your child is doing. But most of the time, you should probably see someone eventually to see, to kind of see the process, see what's going on, check for areas of infection. Six months and above, we talk about things like, what does your child look like overall and how many days? Notice how this whole conversation, I never mention how high the fever gets. Hmm. All I've said is fever or not a fever. And the reason being is we've statistically seen and research has shown that the number of the fever does not correlate to necessarily what the body is going through. I've seen children with a fever of 38.2 who look horrible and a child with a temperature of 40 who's running around the room in the department. Mm -hmm. So truthfully, the number itself, what used to scare people Sure, it tells you your body's mounting a response. Does it mean it's abnormal? Not necessarily. Does it mean that it's a good thing? Not bad, not good. So the number itself is not the concern. It's the temperature, yes or no, and the number of days. So the other rule of thumb is how many days? If you're reaching five days of fever, automatically you should be seeing a doctor because five days of persistent fever needs a physical exam to determine a source of infection. Right. So before I ask Stella her question, I just have to say it on the air so my son kind of will hear this and go, oh, gosh, mom. So when he was little, we all <laughs> he was one of those babies under one who always got a rectal temperature. So there it is. It's out there, buddy. I apologize. But Stella, <laughs> have either of your girls had a fever that made you worry? And what was your reaction besides calling Dr. Tash? <laughs> yeah, well. It's it's so funny that we're talking about fevers because, first of all, this is the very reason Dr. Tash and I decided to go live on Instagram each month. It was to address concerns like that these parents were having when it came to fevers. And also, it really started from a panic call that I made to her one night because uh, Gigi was reading 38 on the thermometer, and she was mm-hmm. around two months at the time. So she first told me I was taking her temperature all wrong <laughs> because I was doing the forehead temperature, and she said, oh, no, you got to take the rectal temperature. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I guess I've been doing it wrong this whole time, even for Layla. And then uh, I realized she, in fact, didn't have a fever when I did take it properly. So it was because of, like, questions like that. So, and, but Gigi did end up having a fever recently when we, we actually recently all got COVID. Mm-hmm. And so she ended up getting a fever, and it was really high, and I started to panic, even though I know that you're not supposed to panic when it's that high, but it was 105. And then it broke when I gave her Advil. So, so my, I guess my reaction was to panic. And Layla in the past has had a number of fevers as well. But I swear, every single time they get fevers, I 
freak out and calm on the outside, but I'm so freaking out on the inside. Even though I do have a Dr. Tash to help calm me down, I still freak out. So I guess the message here, folks, for everybody listening is let's not panic. When we come back. Yes. Exactly. When we come back, ear infections are is our next topic of discussion. This is the Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Have a question for Dr. Claudia? Call us at 416-335-1059. Tweet us at 105.9 The Region or email us info at 1059theregion.com. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. So before the break, we were discussing fevers and when to panic and when not to panic. And the message is, let's not panic. Let's be rational about fevers. Uh, But a topic of equal importance is ear infections. And they are so common and they can be cause for so much pain and concern for parents. So, Stella, have your kids ever had an ear infection and how did you know? No, actually, they haven't, or at least I didn't know that they had one. Um, Layla's had several fevers before, but never an ear infection. My sister, my youngest sister, Josie, she was actually prone to ear infections, and she had uh, tubes put in her ears when she was small. But besides that, my daughters have been okay in that department. So lucky, because I'll tell you, those ear infections in my kids, they were always so daunting for me because it was like the pain, it was the tugging on the ear, all those like trademark signs that they have an ear infection. So Dr. Tash, do you often see ear infections in the ER? Claudia, I love that you asked this question. So interestingly enough, although ear infections 90% of the time are not emergencies, it is a common thing that we do see, and, I'll, and you both touched upon it. Why is it that we're seeing ear infections commonly in the ER? Well, as you spoke about it, right? Mm-hmm. Pain. Your child's in pain. In the middle of the night, they're in pain. They develop a high fever. They're very uncomfortable. And as we all know, if any of us experienced it, I did experience uh, ear throat infections a lot when I was a kid. They're very uncomfortable. But they also can be masked in a different way. They can present with headache. They can present with neck pain. So, excuse me, parents can become very concerned and very afraid. So what could easily just be an ear infection for us, children can present in very, very different ways. So despite not being emergencies, they show up. So yes, they show up to the ER. Is this an uncommon thing in general? If you look at the Canadian Pediatric Society, I think one of the things that I was, you know, when I was kind of updating my stats, is that 75% of children experience at least one ear infection before even starting school. So that's a really high percentage. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, when you look at reoccurrence of ear infections, I think the addition was about 20 to 40% of children across Canada will have reoccurring ear infections. So the question then becomes, why are we seeing them so often throughout the year? Why are kids seeing it more often? And it's usually because of, you know, viruses being the most common cause, viruses can lead to fluid buildup behind the ear. And then when fluid builds up behind the ear, that's a good medium for bacterial infections to kind of build up as well. Also, children have a different anatomy. So their ability to clear fluid from behind their ear is a little different and sometimes may take a little longer. And so having fluid just obstruct the ear canal, you know, 
predisposes them to ear infections. So when we, we talk about ear infections, I'm glad that we're talking about them because they are not infrequent and they can present in various different ways. And I think this is also the most common area of, in general, in practice, clinical practice, that you know, brought about a pathway for determining what needs to be treated, what doesn't, but it's still clinically one of the hardest things for doctors in general to diagnose. And so I think, and, and I'm sure, Stella, like you're so lucky that your kids haven't experienced an ear infection, and I really hope that they don't. But I think one of the things that worried me and probably worries most parents about ear infections is what happens if they go undiagnosed? What complications can arise from it, and is it dangerous? Also a very good question to ask. So if they go undiagnosed, the question becomes, you know, what's the next step? And I like to ask about complications. So do ear infections go undiagnosed? Yes, because sometimes we don't even, so going back one step first, like one step backwards is how do you diagnose them? And we already talked about that, you know, it sometimes is a very difficult and challenging thing from a clinical perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And then if it's difficult, like challenging clinically, then the question becomes management and treatment. And so, the good thing is, is that we have kind of guidelines about what is a real ear infection and what is just fluid behind the ear. And both of them equally can have some complications. So let's talk about just fluid behind the ear. That means you can have fluid behind the ear because of your anatomy, you're not draining properly, allergies. You know when people feel like their ears are full when during allergy season, that's because fluid is building up behind them. And we just call that a middle ear effusion. And that in itself is not an infection, but that can cause pressure behind the eardrum. It can cause a perforated eardrum, which means the eardrum can kind of break open and fluid can leak out. Now, if that happens a few times, you know, we have not seen, or I've not personally seen lots of research that says, you know, you can have long-term effects. But can you have long-term effects from persistent fluid behind the ear? Sure. Think about fluid behind the ear it can numb the ability for children to hear well. So you may notice that your child's going like, huh, what? You know, they may not hear correctly all the time. They may, their ability to hear, especially if they're sitting in the back of the classroom, you know, may, becomes a little bit more difficult. So just fluid behind the ear in general can lead to some long-term complications like difficulty hearing or numbness. I call it numbness to kind of not dumb down the word, but make the word a little bit more relatable. So it's because it's like a blockage. Right. That's the first thing. So if you build up fluid, you can also perforate your eardrum. That's the same with even infection. So the common things with infection is if it goes undiagnosed and there's not, they don't meet criteria. So there's very good criteria. The Canadian Pediatric Society, the American Academy of Pediatrics set out where you either can treat or not treat based on age, fever, length of symptoms or both ears are infected or not and that's a whole pathway in itself but if you don't treat an ear infection that requires like a a treatment so a bacterial infection what you do is that you can cause a second infection somewhere else that infection can seed somewhere meaning it can go somewhere else think about it it's all open area to the neck to the mouth to the brain not to scare people but an undiagnosed ear infection that's really bad can do that also can cause your membrane to perforate. Also, if it's not treated completely, so there's a lot of families that will say, my child's symptoms have improved after three or four days, I stopped the 10-day course or I stopped the five-day course. 
remembering that if you don't treat an ear infection completely, you increase the chance of relapse, which means there's a higher chance that your child can develop another ear infection or another ear infection or resistance um, to treatment. And then the last thing is, is scar tissue. When your eardrum develops scar tissue, then it becomes not as mobile, meaning it can't bend and move with airwaves. So again, going back to hearing issues in the future. What about swimmer's ear? Like that just came to me right now. And I'm like, my gosh, I'm pretty sure that my kids' ear infections have most of the time been caused by the swimmer's ear. So let's talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. And I love that you said this because I was a competitive swimmer. So anyone who experienced swimmer's ear on top of already having bad ears was me. (laughs) Um, So swimmer's ear, I love that we call it swimmer's ear. Swimmer's ear is different. So swimmer ear is a irritation or infection of the canal that is not involving the tympanic membrane. So typically for those of you that are listening, the tympanic membrane is part of the middle part of the ear, which is the division between the outer canal, so anything in front of your membrane that comes out the ear, and it can include even the outside of the ear. So that's where swimmer's ear comes in. So swimmer ear is just an infection and irritation of the skin of the canal of the ear that can also infect the outside. And that's usually due to the water that you're swimming in. Um, water sitting in the ear. So even if you're showering and water gets stuck in the ear. So think about it. It's in front of the membrane, not behind. Ear infections, like what we talk about, like acute otitis media, that's behind the membrane. And so with swimmer's ear, that's usually typically just eardrops. But the way they present is if you pull on the ear on the outside, we call the pinna, that like soft spot or the top spot, the cartilage of it, that is usually very tender. If you press on the tragus, which is that little like corner piece that's attached to your face, that's usually tender. In fact, sometimes you'll even see redness and scaly skin. Mm. You'll see maybe some drainage that's abnormal. And if you try to look in your child's ear, you'll see like white drainage, sometimes pus, sometimes just a really red ear. And that also, if you think about it, what happens is the, the canal starts to swell up and it becomes smaller. So it's harder for people to hear. They'll feel like they're really, really full, but not in the same way as an actual ear infection. And typically, swimmer's ear doesn't cause high fevers, like an, 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 sorry, an acute otitis media. Okay, so now if, okay, so that it is different than an ear infection because the ear infection is like the middle ear. Um, but when do we know, like when do kids, and is it still common? Because when I was growing up, um, I gosh, every second friend of mine had tubes, quote unquote, put in their ears. Is this still a common procedure? And is what is the proper term for that? <laughs> no, it's also, so I was fortunate enough never to need to like ear tubes. And I, and I love it because I want to clarify one thing that you just brought and highlighted to me, Claudia. So most times people are probably thinking right now, wait a second, ear, middle ear infection, outer ear infection, aren't those all ear infections? So let's clarify. Yes. We use ear infection more synonymously with the middle ear, which means behind the ear membrane. So the one that where people have the high fe- where kids have high fevers, they're in discomfort, they're painful. That's what we synonymously say ear infection. But yes, all of them are on a spectrum of ear infection. So now when we're talking about what you were asking is about what we call meringotomy tubes, which is just a fancy word for saying also tympanostomy tubes, mm-hmm. which means 
They're tubes that are placed in your children's ear to pressure equalize. What I mean by that is your child's been deemed to either have persistent inner ear, sorry, middle ear infections, and now it's getting to, I think, the, I wouldn't say quote me, but usually these numbers are still pretty correct. I think it's six times per year or four times in six months, and they have what we call chronic middle ear fluid with hearing loss, so some form of difficulty or debilitation from hearing for three months or more. And there's been some changes in the um, eardrum itself. And this is based on the Canadian Society of Otolaryngology. I always have a hard time with that word. Um, head and neck surgery group from Canada. If I'm not mistaken, that's still their, their, their criteria for why you would get tubes. So think about it. Ear infection, six per year. So that's more than half, like about half the year or four times in six months. So something, and it's gotta be chronic middle ear fluid, and there's gotta be some de debilitating form to the ear, like hearing process. So essentially what's being said is, your child's building up fluid in the back of their ear, they're not draining it properly, this is a concern because you could cause chronic ear infections, and it affects their hearing. That is the reason why we would place tubes. From my understanding, this is still a very common procedure, but they have to really streamline who would get these. The procedure is short and quick. It's a day surgery. It's not uncommon. But, you know, every surgery is a surgery and, and parents get afraid. And I don't blame them. That's If I was told my child was, and I don't have children, you know, just for full transparency, but any surgery is concerning to a parent, even simple ones. Right. Well, ladies, we have learned so much about fevers and about ear infections. We definitely have to continue this conversation for another segment. But in the meantime, Stella, if listeners want to learn more about you or cook along with you and Layla and watch little Gigi grow, how can they do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. So you can follow me on um, Instagram at, at S. Aquisto, A-C-Q-U-I-S-T-O, or you can find us on YouTube, Cooking with Layla Rose. And thank you so much for having us. And Dr. Tash, please let listeners know how they can follow you and get informed on the health and well-being of their children. Yeah, thank you, Claudia. Um, so one of the things that I use mainly is my Instagram. So you can find me on dr.tash.official on Instagram, where it's an open account. And I try to do a lot of just general medical posts, and I do take re requests um, for interesting topics. But then I also do um, some Instagram lives. So I try to do a weekly Instagram live on weekends with other medical professionals on hot topics in the media, and that's called my Physicians in Living Rooms um, series. And then myself and Stella do a monthly series called Reflections from the ER, where we talk about also hot topics. And just like what you're doing today, Claudia, finding ways to reach out to parents, the public, provide a different form, a different medium of education, where we can involve parents, have active live questions, answer those questions, and bring a perspective both from a humanistic standpoint, a physician standpoint, and you know, it's a non-judgmental space for everyone. I also have uh, Twitter, which is also Dr. Tosh Official, and Facebook, but my main educational posts are all on Instagram. Thank you again, Claudia, for having us. This oh. was really fun, and I appreciated the time together today. Oh, my gosh. It was my pleasure. And everyone can find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Macchiella or my website, ClaudiaMacchiella.com. That's my show for this week. For previous broadcasts of The Wellness Prescription, go to our website, 1059theregion.com. 
Thank you for listening. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at healthyplanetcanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.